Take your Bibles. And let's go to this passage of Scripture that was read for us. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I don't know how you felt when the passage was read. I'm sure you followed along. You watched, looked at the words on the screen or looked at them in your Bible. But uh, I, I think there were probably some words that you read or some sentences that you read that might have startled you uh, and, and created some kinds of questions in your mind. Uh, this is an interesting passage in God's Word. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul um, shifts what he's been saying up to this point in time and goes into a whole new section of teaching related to the topic of worship. And while our eyebrows might have been raised as we uh, read some of the things we did today, uh, I can assure you that there are some things in this passage that may seem a little antiquated or mysterious to us, but are relevant and applicable to us today. Now, in saying all that, this is a passage that is often avoided. And, uh, and why do people avoid it? Well, um, one Bible commentator has said this is one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. And he's right. <laughs> it's controversial because the language in the passage sounds patriarchal to us. It sounds hierarchical to us. Uh, words like head and authority are used in this passage. And whenever we hear words like that, we, we, to our ears today, you know, people like us who have been baptized in women's rights and in feminism and in woke culture, these kind of words seem very, very irrelevant to us. In some ways, they seem oppressive. And then there are all kinds of interpretation difficulties in the passage. I mean, what does Paul mean by head? What, what, what is this head covering that he's talking about here? He, he says that, that women are to wear a sign of authority on their heads because of the angels. What does that mean? And then he says, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a, it's a shame to him? What does Paul mean by nature? So all kinds of questions arise, and it seems to us, on the surface at least, that the instructions that are given here are archaic to us, they're alien to us. They seem to be very, very culture-bound or ancient-bound, applying to a day and age that is so different than the day and age in which we live in. But we can't avoid this passage, and if I were to jump over it and go to chapter 12, which I was tempted to do, then someone in the church would have come and said, chicken. And, uh, and I, I couldn't allow my pride uh, to, to bear that. So in spite of the fact that there are difficulties here, I, I want you to understand that I approach this passage with a deep conviction in my heart, and I hope you do too. That conviction is this, Paul's word to Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out from God. And therefore, it is useful for rebuking, for correcting, for instructing, and for training us in righteousness. So whatever this passage is saying, because it is part of Holy Scripture, it is useful to us, it is helpful to us in some way, in spite of the fact that it may be shrouded in, in all kinds of cultural dress from 2,000 years back, 
There is in this passage a clear teaching, a central teaching that is relevant to us today whether you or I will accept it or not. So that's why the passage is avoided. But what is the passage all about? Well, generally speaking, the passage is all about what he says in verse 2, where he refers to the fact that they were holding to the teaching, some translations say the traditions, just as I pass them on to you. Now, when Paul the Apostle uses the word traditions here, he's not using the word tradition like you and I might, like things, you know, like we do at Christmas time. We have certain traditions, family traditions that we've kind of carried on from one generation to another. That's not what he's saying. He is actually referring to the teaching. He's referring to sound teaching. And so the word traditions was a, was a very, very common word that was, that was used by Jewish rabbis in Paul day, Paul's days. They would talk about essentially a block of teaching. There would be teaching on certain topics, certain issues, and those were referred to as the traditions. In the pastoral letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul refers to the traditions, the teachings, as sound teachings. In other words, it's doctrine that comes to us from the apostles of Jesus. And this particular block of teaching that we have here, beginning at chapter 11, actually runs all the way through to chapter 14. And this whole block of teaching is, as I said earlier, is all about worship in the Christian church, worship in a local church. So there are worship matters here that we'll be looking at for a, couple, for a number of weeks here that Paul addresses. And specifically now, what this passage is about is not just the general theme of worship, but more specifically, men and women in worship. And the interconnected relationship between men and women or husbands and wives in the act of worship. And so there's talk here about prophesying and praying. Now, I want you to notice verse 6, 16, because it's pretty clear. Paul uses a pretty strong word here. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, in other words, everything he's just taught, you want to be contentious about this. Clearly, there were some people in the Corinthian church who were violating what Paul was saying here in the teaching. They didn't like it, and they were bucking against it, and it was becoming apparent in their, in their public worship that this contentiousness was there. And what the passage is about is headgear, head coverings, and hairstyle. That's what it's about. You say, well, so what? Why is that important? Well, let's, let's get into the passage a little bit here more because in essence, when he talks about headgear and hairstyle, he's... He's talking about what is appropriate for men and women in terms of headgear and hairstyle and what is not. Particularly, it pertains to our worship. So he begins with an important principle, and the important principle is found here in verse 3. He says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, immediately, the one phrase is the center phrase. That's the, there are three statements that are made, but it's the center state statement that gets everybody going like we react, and that is the head of the woman is man. I mean, that's, that's where our cultural reaction happens to something from this ancient culture. The head of the woman 
is man. Now, when we, we, we use the word head, there, there are people who try to get around what this means. They kind of come up with different meanings as to what the word head means. Listen, I have read the arguments, I've read the commentaries, I've heard preachers go into all kinds of interpretive gymnastics on this thing because they want to gut the word head out of its meaning. Head means head. It's how, it's how you and I use the word head. It means someone who has authority. Your boss at work is the head. He has authority over you. It's talking about one who has authority over someone else. So when he talks about head, he's implying, okay, there's something at the top, but there's an order that goes down, that filters down. So he's talking about an order and an authority in male-female relationships. Now, immediately, again, as I said, this is a hierarchical statement that he's making, and it's unwelcome to us today, and people begin to bristle. But this center phrase, the head of the woman is man, is really the critical one, though it's not everything Paul's saying, but it's from that phrase that the whole argument that Paul gives us here in this passage begins to unfold. There's an assertion that Paul is making, the head of the woman is man, And the broader context of all of this are relationships not between men and women, but relationship within the Holy Trinity. Because he says in the last statement, the head of Christ is God. So there's some kind of a relationship, a head authority relationship within the Holy Trinity Now, we believe, and rightly so, that the the Bible makes it clear that the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are co-equal. The Father is not more equal than the Son, and the Son is not more equal than the Spirit. They they are co-equal, but within the Trinity, there's an order. There's a symmetry. There's a there's a there's a hierarchy, as it were. And the persons of the Trinity relate to each other in an ordered relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons, are all fully God. There is a sameness in their nature, but that does not prevent the truth that there is a difference in their order in terms of their relationship within the Godhead. There is a difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. They are distinct. They are co-equal. There's an ordering of their relationship. Now, this is important in terms of this topic that we're dealing with this morning. And let me, let me quote to you from an Australian author, a woman very insight, insightful in the commentary of hers that I was reading. And she says, one of the fallacies... One of the fallacies of the modern feminist ideology is that for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. But she says, and discerningly, you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having inferiority and superiority of dignity and value. That's bang on. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share in the same divine nature. 
But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, especially in terms of our salvation, they each have a different role. The Father did not die for us. And the Father does not indwell us. You follow what I'm saying? There's a difference of role. So the Father is the head of Christ. But this doesn't make Jesus inferior in any way. Jesus willingly submits himself to his Father and accepts the headship of the Father in order to bring glory to the Father. And this also means that there is authority and order in relationships, that this authority and order in relationships, in human relationships, originates in the life of God himself within the Holy Trinity. And that means that we just simply cannot dismiss 1 Corinthians 11 as being just the part of the Bible that has a lot of cultural baggage to it. Verse 3, the head of the woman is man. Okay, so now that I've got you all upset, what in the world does this mean? But before we see how Paul applies this principle, let me just make two observations. First of all, Paul is not saying that all women must submit to all men. That's not what he's saying. This is more about headship than it is about submission. Paul is not saying that women are second-class citizens or second-class human beings, that women have less dignity than men. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying they have less intelligence, less worth, less purpose, but he is saying that just as Jesus Christ was not diminished in his divinity and glory, because the father is the head of that relationship. Neither is a woman diminished in any way whatsoever because the man is the head of the relationship. He is also not saying that there is no difference between, in, the, in the relationships between men and women. He assumes there's some kind of an order in verse 3. Now, now Paul doesn't go in and flesh this out. In this particular passage, he doesn't flesh out what the headship of the man actually means. If you're looking for that, you have to go to other passages in the Word. And for our purposes this morning, we're not going there. If you want to come to me afterwards and talk about that, I can give you some passages to read. But we're not going there because, because he's focused in on a particular thing. In essence, what he, what he does is he gives a summary state, statement of a principle. The man is the head of the woman. And that principle informs this passage. And as I said, there is much more about this truth and other portions of the word of God, but we're, we're not going there today. So you have to come back, I don't know, maybe two or three years, someone will teach on it here, and you can come back for it then. So let's apply the principle. Let's apply the principle. We come to our second point. And the verses that follow now, there is an applying of this principle. Paul is talking, look at verse 4 and verse 5. He's talking about a man who prays or prophesies and a woman who prays or prophesies. Talking about doing that within the church. So, so what, does this, what does this actually mean? So we have some other questions we have to answer. And that is, first of all, what is the meaning of prophesying? I think we all know what praying is, but what is the meaning of prophesying? And then what is the meaning of a woman having a covering on her head that makes her praying and prophesying acceptable? So uh, what does it mean by prophesying? Now, we're going to get into this 
in a few weeks' time when we get to chapter 14. And I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more, so I'm going to really be brief here. But first of all, just to say this, there is no definition found in the New Testament as to exactly what prophesying is. You've got to wait till chapter 14, and, and we'll get there in a few weeks' time. What's clear in the passage in chapter 11 is both men and women are encouraged by the Apostle Paul to pray and to prophesy. The only qualifier in there is that the woman must have something on her head when she does so. So, and I'm going to give you just a brief definition here. What Paul is saying is that both men and women prophesied in the New Testament church. And I believe that what that means is that they engaged, both men and women, in the assembly of worship, both men and women engaged in what I would call spirit-prompted, spontaneous, and extemporaneous speech that magnified the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and encouraged believers to grow in their faith and to be built up in Christ. And in that sense, that is a ministry that is given to all men and women. Again, the only qualifier here, a woman has to have something on her head, a sign of authority on her head, when she does this. So that brings us now to what in the world are the head coverings that are mentioned here. Well, first of all, notice verse 4, Paul makes it clear, a man should not have one on his head. Verse 5, a woman should have one on her head. So what is the head covering that Paul is talking about here? And again, honestly, there are pages and pages and commentaries and commentaries that are written on this, and the more you read them, the more confused you become. And I would submit to you this, that while we're going to look at what the head covering was, the real issue isn't the head covering per se. It's not identifying precisely what this head covering was, but what was meant by it. In other words, this is a a piece of clothing that is symbol-laden. It has real meaning to it in this first century culture. So the possibilities for the head are are basically two. There are are a number of them, but you can boil them all down to two. We're talking about headgear or hairstyle. So, uh, many com- commentators believe that, that women in the New Testament church would, would when they prayed or prof- prophesied, when they worshiped God, they would have like a, like a shawl over her head or a cloak. Um, perhaps the best equivalent in modern day lang- language would be something like a, a kerchief or a, or a bandana. And this would have, of course, been decorative and, and fashionable in some kind of way, but it was a piece of clothing that she would wear on her hair that in, in some way would accentuate her femininity. In other words, it was becoming to her as a woman. Uh, the other possibility is, is verse 15, and that's just simply referring to hairstyle, because if you go down to the last line of verse 15, for long hair is given to her as a covering. I believe that it's actually a combination of the two. There, there, there's an arrangement of a woman's hair. It would, have been, it would have been up. And the arrangement of her hair was symbolic of and related to her femininity. It was neatly up, and, 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 and it had a partial cover on it. 
And sculptures from the ancient world point this out. There are sculptures of women that, that indicate this is how women dressed in that period of time. There are sculptures of women at wedding ceremonies, uh, the bride, and, and her hair is bound up, and her hair is actually covered with some kind of a, a bandana on her hair. And, and that, that, that clothing on the head was a sign of decorum and dignity that all women would wear, but certainly it was a symbol that would be worn by a married woman. It, it, it indicated, I'm taken, I'm not available. Now, so this means then that the, the headgear and the hairstyle symbolized authority. They symbolized the, the headship of the husband to the woman, his authority over her in this order of creation. And I think from 1 Corinthians, we can also see here that it functioned as an appropriate and a meaningful symbol of authority and order in gender relationships between men and women. Summarize then, it was hair arranged up in modest and dignified manner with the accessory piece of a decorative piece of clothing, a piece of clothing that had real meaning to it. Now let me, let me just try to illustrate this uh, if I can with a kind of a crazy illustration, but all of you know that I am the proud owner of a classic vintage Vespa scooter. Now, it is not a moped, as some of you have derogatorily referred to it. It is a scooter. In other words, it is a real motorbike. Why are you laughing at that? Now, I know there are a number of other brothers here in the church who, who have, who own, and ride inferior machines like Harleys and Triumphs and Hondas. Whether you own a superior Vespa like me or an inferior motorbike like a Harley Davidson, there is one thing that all of us have in common, and that is we have to wear a helmet. We have to wear a helmet. You have to. Now, in our culture, when a man wears, or a woman wears a helmet riding a scooter or if you have to, a motorbike. It, it, when you put the helmet on, we, 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 we do it, of course, because what we're normally thinking is this is protection for our head in the event of an accident. But I would submit to you it is also a sign of authority because the government says you have to have a helmet on your head. And if you go riding around... I shouldn't say you. If I go riding around on my scooter like a wild guy without a helmet on, and you can ride wild on a scooter, I assure you, if you do that, you're saying, I don't care about the authority. I hope that helps. Maybe it confuses further. I hope that helps to illustrate what's being said here. Now, this begs the question. Why would Paul want a woman to have her head covered and a man to have his head not covered when praying or prophesying. So now we get into the reasons for applying the, prince, the principle. And the first one is this. In this passage, he talks about God's order. God's order. And this is the most fundamental thing that he says here. 
the, the, the covering on a woman's head represented in that culture the ordered relationship between a man and a woman. And that ordered relationship reflected the relationship between Christ and God the Father. Paul wanted the man and the woman to look different, particularly in worship. He wanted them to look different because in looking different, they are aligning themselves with the order that God has built into creation itself, with an order that is actually built right into the life of the triune God. So verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, uh -uh, he says, that's going against the order. He dishonors his head, meaning not just his physical head, but Christ who is his head. Verse 5, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved, he says. Why is it that some men were, were, were covering their heads? I'm going to deal with the men first. Some commentators give diff, different answers. Some say, well, that's how the pagan priests would pray to their, to their gods. They would, they would cover themselves with a cloak when the cloak would go over their head every time they would pray in any way. And, and Paul's saying, listen, man, I, I don't want you to imitate the practice of, of pagan priests when it comes to worship. So there may be some truth there. But I think the main underlying concern was that if a man had his head covered, he was denying his own headship. He was denying his responsibilities as a man in the male-female relationship by dressing and practicing what women should do. What women should do. And when they did this, of course, that was a dishonoring of their head, the Lord Jesus Christ. A man, by covering his head then, would be doing something in worship that would be considered disgraceful. Shameful. Why? Because this is what women wear when they worship. And it is the shameful, a man shamefully depicting himself in some way as being like a woman. Now, look, look at what he says in verses 5 and 6 because his, his language is strong. It is just, he's referring to the woman, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. That's strong. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. Why, why is Paul speaking so, so firmly here? I, I think there are a few factors at work. I think what he's saying is that, that the women in the Corinthian church somehow wanted to present themselves, married women, as though they were unmarried in worship. They, they wanted to appro- women wanted to appropriate to themselves an authority that belonged to their husbands. And so by removing the head covering, they were showing disrespect to their head, that is to their husbands. And Paul is so firm in what he's saying here because by removing the the head covering, they were in essence renouncing the authority of their husbands. An authority that God wanted to be seen 
in their relationship with each other. In effect, they were denying their relational responsibilities as wives. Now, there were several kinds of women who did not wear coverings in Corinth in the ancient world. One class of women were high-class mistresses of influential Corinthian men who used their hair as sexual attraction. There were adulteresses who were shamed publicly by having their heads shaved, sort of reminiscent of what happened in places like France and the Netherlands in the Second World War. Once liberation came, remember, many women who had had relations with Germans were publicly shamed by the shaving of their heads. And another group of individuals, women, would have been the sacred prostitutes who were actually priestesses, who, 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 who carried on their priestess work, their prostitution work in the temples of Apollo and Artemis and, and uh, Aphrodite. These were the women who wore their hair down and, and they would engage in ecstatic, out of control, a speech of prophetic oracles from the gods. And Paul saying, you, you, you don't want to mimic that. You don't want to be like that. And so if you were making, a, if you were not a woman, you're married and you uncover your hair in a public setting, you were making a statement, I'm available. And so this is touching right at the core of morality itself. In short, the Apostle Paul wanted men and women to dress and behave like men and women in a way consistent with their roles and responsibilities within the marriage relationship. And, though, and, and as though they were content within that order of relationship that God had ordained. Now in verses 7 to 9, he goes on and he gives the next reason, or the next reasons. And the next reason that he gives is that this is, is rooted, the applying of the principle of headship is rooted in, in creation itself. Look, look at the words he uses now. Um, In verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, we're just getting into a minefield of political incorrectness at this point in time. Just keep this in mind. Paul is not denying here. Notice he says the man is the image and the glory of God. He just says the woman is the glory of man. He doesn't use the word image in reference to woman. Is that because Paul is a male chauvinist and he's against women? No, 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 no. Paul did not use the word image in relation, the image of God in relation to a woman because Paul already knew that was true because he knew the book of Genesis and it's very clear man and woman are both made in 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 the image of God. But his focus here now is on glory, not image. Glory. The point is the glory of the man and the glory of the woman. So so how is the woman the glory of man? Well, look at what he says in verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. This this takes us right back to Genesis chapter 2, where God takes the rib out of Adam, makes the woman. The woman comes out of from the man, and she's created, remember, God brings her to Adam, and Adam breaks out into this poem, into this song. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman before she was taken out of man. That's a, that's a poem. It's a song. It's a love song. In essence, that's what it is. It is a song of joy. He's thrilled at what he sees because she is his glory. And that song that, that, that Adam sang when Eve was created was the first of a million love songs throughout history in all cultures inspired by the beauty and the glory of a woman to a man. And Adam was, he was like breathless at that point in time. His days of loneliness were gone and she became for him his needed opposite. So verse nine goes on. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The woman was created for him. He was not created for her. Now, immediately people react and say, whoa, 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 there's inequality here. Listen, that's the exact opposite of what's being said here. When, When Paul says that the woman was created for the man, he's not saying the woman's created for the man so she can be a plaything for the man. It's not what he's saying. Oh, so that she can be like a domestic slave for him. Or, or just simply a mother to look after the kids. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that this means that the woman was created for the sake of the man. That her purpose was to help him, to complement him, to help him. And every woman knows that every man needs help, Right? to come alongside him as a partner with him, to share in the tasks that God had given to mankind, to both men and women, to fill the earth and to rule over the creation. Now, an observation here. This is important. He's quoting now from Genesis chapter one and two. He's talking about the creation. That's important. In other words, He's talking about the world before sin came into the world. Before the fall of humanity into sin. And you need to see that here in the passage. And I'm mentioning this and I'm stressing this because the equality of the sexes and the differences of a man and woman and the pattern for male-female relationships are the way God has made us. It's not something that comes later because of sin. The pattern of of male-female relationship is not the result of our fall into sin. It is rooted in creation itself. In other words, this is what Paul's talking about here. It's not some first century cultural oddity that can be disregarded in its entirety in this enlightened and progressive age in which we live today. No, he says, rooted in in creation itself. Now notice verses 11 and 12, because in verse 11 and 12, he, he, he now gives some, we could call them corrective words or, or qualifying words, some qualifying words. In the Lord, however, let me qualify what I'm saying, Paul says. Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They both need each other. For as woman came from man, Right? Eve from Adam's rib. It doesn't stop there. The story doesn't finish there. So also man is born of woman. 
There is no man in this room today who wasn't born from a mother, from a woman. So, so, so what, what is Paul saying here? Well, he, I think he, he adds this point here because he wants to make sure that, that men don't take out of context what he just said about the, the woman being, or the man being the head of the woman and about the woman being made for the man. He doesn't want a misapplication of what he's saying. He doesn't want men thinking, well, they, they have an opportunity now to be, to be oppressive, that this gives them a green light to rule over women indiscriminately. No, this is a strong qualifier and a corrective to misapplying what the principle he's just laid down. He's saying, yes, the woman is the glory of man, created from man and for man, but the man is not independent of the woman, nor the woman independent of the man. They are both interdependent on each other. They need each other. They complement each other. They are both the gift of God to the other. Now notice I skipped verse 10. I skipped verse 10, so we've got to go back to verse 10. And this takes us now into the third reason that Paul gives as to why it's important to apply this principle. And uh, I, I wish I could skip right over verse 10, but I can't uh, forever. I've got to deal with it for this reason. And because of the angels. Wow, what does that mean? The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So here is the final reason the Apostle Paul gives. And uh, the principle of headship is to be observed. He's saying a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. But what in the world do the angels have to do with this? Why bring in angels at this point? I mean, we're, there's enough trouble just talking about men and women getting along with each other. Now we've got to bring in angelic beings. And there are all kinds of ideas as to what this means. But... Let's, let's go on a few things that we know. First of all, angels are actually present when we worship God. Do you believe that? I believe that the angels worship with us. If, we, if God would strip away our barrier from seeing the unseen world, we would see right now that there are a company of angels with us worshiping God. They're worshiping with us. Secondly, the angels are the servants of God. They are sent to do God's will. Therefore, it is not a stretch for us to conclude that because they are the servants of God, that they are interested in what God is interested in and that they want everything in worship and between male and female to be done properly. In other words, I'm saying that the angels are, I believe, the custodians of God the God-ordained custodians to, to guard the hierarchies that God has put in place, the systems of order and authority that God has put in place in this present age. So that when this principle of the headship of the man is violated, it actually concerns the angels too. They witness what we do and the angels are concerned that there be a sign of authority on the head of a woman. They are desirous then, the angels are, that human beings, men and women, will live in this God-ordained order of creation. Why? Well, yes, of course, because they love God. But I think there's one other thing here. The angels know, perhaps more than we know, 
what happened when some of their companions, angels, rebelled against the authority of the living God. And Lucifer, the dragon, Satan, and all of his demons were created. They, they understand what violating God's order does to God's creation itself. Now, in verses 13 through 16, Paul makes a number of concluding comments. And his comments come in the reform of three rhetorical questions. Look at what he says. Judge for yourselves. He's wrapping up now. He's saying, you're not idiots. <laughs> He's saying, I don't, I don't need to overly reason, reason with you. I, I, think this through, he's saying. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Just to point out here, that as Paul wraps up his concluding argument, so to speak, he doesn't draw from the distinctiveness of men and women. He doesn't draw from the independence of men and women from each other or from the interdependence of men and women to each other. He simply makes an appeal to nature. Doesn't the very nature of things teach you? What does he mean by this? I believe what Paul is saying is that human beings are given a natural and an instinctive sense of what is right and wrong, what is proper and what is improper. And that God has planted that sense of right and wrong into us in creation. Especially when it comes to what is right and wrong with respect to human sexuality. So I'm not talking, Paul's not talking here about social customs now, when he says by the nature of things. He is not talking about cultural conditioning. He is talking about an innate sense of what is right or wrong, a sense implanted to us in creation. And there is a parallel to this passage in the book of Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, Paul uses the word nature. And when he uses the word nature in Romans 1, I think it sheds some light back onto what he says here in 1 Corinthians 1. Or 1 Corinthians 11. And in Romans 1, he refers to nature. And in verses 26 and 27 in Romans 1, he refers to men and women in homosexual relationships. And here's what he says. He says, when a man or a woman engages in a homosexual relationship, they exchange, that's the word he uses, they exchange the natural function of sexuality for what is contrary to nature. In other words, homosexual activity is a violation of the God-given created order and the natural instinct that God has placed within us to engage in sexual relationships with a person of the same sex is a violation of the created order. It is a violation of what we know intuitively by nature. 
So Paul is saying, by referring to nature, he is saying that usually, normally, men instinctively and naturally shrink away from doing anything that a culture labels as feminine. So too females. Their natural inclination is to dress femininely. The point is how men and women wear their hair is a significant indication of whether they are abiding by the created order. Now in saying this, I think we all understand that in this debate of men and female relationships and how a man dresses or a woman dresses, that the, the, the application of this would differ widely from culture to culture. So in terms of today, I believe that it is possible for a man to have long hair and to still appear masculine. I believe it's also possible for a woman to have shorter hair and to still appear feminine. So I don't think the length of hair is the issue. But we also know that it is possible for a man to wear his hair long because he wants to look feminine and for a woman to wear her hair short because she wants to look masculine. The point is, and the wrap-up words that Paul says here, is that God wants his people, male and women, male and female, man and woman, to live and to abide by the created order. Okay, I've said some heavy things this morning. And I'm sure that in our connection groups, we're going to have some very interesting discussion on some of these things. Can I just make a few wrap-up comments now? Some takeaway points on the significance of this, on the, of this for us today. I've already done a few, but let me, let me just elaborate a little bit more, some final thoughts. First of all, a wooden application, a wooden application, like strict, a wooden application of this passage will not guarantee conformity to this passage's intent. There is a large amount of time that has gone on between first century culture and 21st century culture. And if you just try to say, okay, okay, all the women got to put, got to put something on your head uh, tomorrow, next Sunday, we're all going to have the women are all going to... If you do that, you're going to miss completely the point that is being made. In our culture today, the things we wear in our heads have nothing to do with first century meanings. What we wear in our head is something else than an acceptance of God's order of relationships. In Canada, we wear toques on our head for one reason. It's cold outside. And we put hats on our heads because they protect us from UV rays and things like sunburn. So when you're wearing a hat or a toque or a scarf, it just means you're either sensible or fashionable or you're having a bad hair day. So to obey the intent of what Paul is saying here, we have to look for 21st century cultural equivalence to what Paul's writing about 2,000 years ago. Cultural equivalence today to first century meanings. Things that will say and communicate in our demeanor, in our dress, 
in our relationships that we accept God's order that shows that we're married and that we're respectful of our spouse. Number two, God is not pleased with the blurring of genders. When we come to worship God, when we come to praise God, part of our, accept, part of our praise and worship to God, we praise Him for His salvation, but we also praise Him for His creation. And part of our worship, part of our praise, is the giving thanks to God and the acceptance of the way God has made us as men and women. We glorify him in the distinctiveness of our genders because of the way he has made us. So when a man prays or prophesies, when a woman prays or prophesies, that that is a part of of our worship expression to God in that we see him as a good creator who has made all things good and ordered all things well. And women then, when they pray or prophesy in the church, they are to express their acceptance of God's created order through their demeanor and through their appearance. And men do the same by what they wear and how they relate to others. Now for some of us, this, not be, may, be easy, this may not be easy because of what is in our hearts and the propaganda effect of our culture upon us. But this matters to God. The point is, is that God has made men and women different, so vive la différence. The next portion I want to read to you, so I say it carefully. Of course, there are many cultural conventions when it comes to masculine and feminine roles, jobs, and rights, which need to be revised or rejected. As creator, however, God intends that men and women should have different but complementary functions. Each human being is to give glory to God by being what God intends him or her to be. Men are to be truly masculine. Notice the word I I used was truly, not stereotypical masculine. But men are to be truly masculine and women truly feminine without allowing stereotypes of either to dictate our perceptions. But rather basing our understanding of what it is to be fully human on the perfect model of Jesus Christ. This principle will make us cautious cautious of going overboard on the modern tendency to eliminate sexual differences. The fullness of Christian worship can be experienced only as each man and each woman created for God and redeemed by God allow their humanness to be expressed according to God's pattern. In all of this, Paul wanted the Corinthians and us to see that gender distinctions are an innate part of human physiology and social norms, even if the specifics of the norms have some variations. Gender 
is not a social construct. It is God's idea, and it is not inherently oppressive. Your freedom, my freedom, whether male or female, is found in our Creator's purpose for us. In this gender-hostile culture, our congregations must be faithful to God's displaying His image in male and female. We must follow through on our distinctions in roles in the congregation that are clear in Scripture, even if they are unpopular in the world at large. Let me say one other thing, and that is, I, there are a few more points, but I'm just going to limit it to this third one, and that decorum and propriety in worship is important. In the last 50 years, we have seen incredible changes in public worship in churches across our land. There was an established decorum of the past that was very cultural in its orientation. And as our culture has changed, that decorum has changed. I mean, I remember a pastor, being a pastor in the past, as, as, as late as 1995, and I had to have a tie on and a coat on when I preached. Had to. That was, pastors didn't show up without having a tie on. And most men came to church with a coat and tie on as well. If you do that today, you're something of a cultural oddity. Sorry, I think I just offended someone. And let's acknowledge this. Let, let, let's, be, let's be frank. That was kind of a legalism that was in the church. You had to dress a certain way in order to come to church. This really impacted me, actually, very early in my pastoral experience because when I became pastor in Toronto, I had just come from 10 years in the, Phil, the Phil, Phil, Philippines where I didn't wear a suit for a whole 10 years or a tie because they have different cultural dress. Now I come back to Toronto, and it was expected that I have coat and tie on. So my wife and I went out, and we did some shopping. And this was for the evening service, the evening worship service. It was a little more informal, a little more casual, not as formal as the morning. And so my wife said, well, why don't we just get you some turtlenecks to wear? That'll look nice with a jacket. I go, okay, fine. We go out and blow our life savings on turtlenecks. <laughs> and this woman objected in the church. Like, she was hot and furious about it. And the elders came to me and said, well, John, I guess, you know, better not wear a turtleneck on a Sunday night. And you'll notice I normally wear a turtleneck on Sunday morning. That's because I'm still getting back at her. <laughs> so let's acknowledge that we, we put in place some things that are really not necessary to acceptable worship. But there are abiding principles the abiding principle of modesty in what we wear. There is no evidence at all that the Christians of the first century would dress up elaborately to worship. No evidence at all. Neither is there evidence that they would violate their cultural norms in the expressions of the God-given order that God had put in place. People came to worship in ways that were just simply customary for a man or a woman to dress. But in our gatherings today, we, we must communicate 
a commitment in our decorum and in the propriety of dress, a commitment to holiness reflected in the interactions of the opposite sex and the way we dress. And we must do nothing that causes people to stumble or creates unnecessary temptation or unneeded offense. And in so doing, we will glorify God in our worship. Would you stand, please? Let's bow our heads, if we would, please. Ask the worship team just to make their way to the platform. and We're going to sing briefly in a moment the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. I think a good way for us to close so that we are brought into the presence again of the Holy One and we see again our need, being unholy as we are, to bring our lives into conformity with the will of a holy God. And so I leave this challenge with you as your heads are bowed in God's presence this morning. I don't know what I've said that may have challenged you. There may have been a particular point in this message. But if God has challenged you, you may find yourself even bristling today over some of the things that I've said. My, my question to you would be why? Why that reaction? Why, why has an offense been caused by anything said today? Would you be willing to humble yourself enough just to Say in the presence of God, Lord, search my heart. Show me why I'm reacting the way I am. Reveal to me your truth. Would all of us be willing today to say, Lord, I'm a man, I'm a woman. Help me to live in the ordered relationships that you have put in place so that all of my behavior, all of my dress, brings glory to you and reflects the awesome goodness of making me a man or making me a woman. Let's worship together. May we all go from this place knowing the richest blessing of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.